0: Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Central London service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. It's great to be with you this morning. And uh, today we are concluding our third week in a little mini series on the subject of generosity. And there are two reasons why we've been talking about this for three weeks. The first reason is the Bible says lots about generosity. You read through the Bible and again and again and again, God is talking about how we can be generous with the things that we have. So since we believe the Bible is the foundation for life, the way we were intended to live a flourishing life, we think it's important to talk about the things that God talks about that. Having said that, of course, the Bible says lots about money and generosity is only one theme. So if we were to talk about everything the Bible said about money, we'd be here today far longer than any of us want to be, or the series would at least be longer than three weeks. So if you have questions about other things to do with money, maybe uh, to do with attitudes towards money, saving, investing, uh, some of the, the, the bigger sort of broader financial questions, then I would recommend checking out a talk that I gave at the end of last year in our Proverbs series called Love, wealth, no, Love Wisdom, not Wealth. <laughs> Wrong way around. Uh, that's a different talk. <laughs> Um, but do check that one out. And, and actually, as I talk about generosity today, I'm assuming some other principles from there. So do check that out if that would be helpful. But the second reason we're talking about generosity today is, uh, unsurprisingly, because today is our gift day. And you've heard a bit about that already today and over the last few weeks. So I won't say loads about that, except to say this. I am so excited to be part of a church that is growing and therefore needs increased generosity because we are seeking to be a blessing to every part of the city. And one of the real privileges for me is that I get to travel around all our services preaching and seeing firsthand fruit that maybe only you guys either don't know is there at all or only hear secondhand. It is a real joy to travel around and see all the great things God is doing in us as a church. And I am excited about all he's currently doing and all he will continue to do in our five, hopefully soon to be six, hopefully soon to be many more than six, services across the city. But I know and we know that we will only be able to achieve the things that God has for us if we create a culture of generosity, not just here today, but undergirding everything we do as a church. So... Today what I want to do is just look at three verses that come at the end of Paul's letter to Timothy. It's 1 Timothy chapter 6 if you have a Bible. To give you a bit of context, Paul is writing to a young pastor called Timothy who leads arguably the biggest church in the ancient world in the the city of Ephesus, a big challenging city, uh, not dissimilar actually to London in many ways. And Paul writes to Timothy and says a whole load of things and in chapter 6 he talks a little bit about the subject of money and he says, be wary about uh, a loving money. Now, to be clear, he's not negative about money. He's not negative about wealth or riches. We'll see that in a moment. But he does say it brings with it certain temptations you need to be careful about. So he talks about this kind of warning about the love of money. And then he talks about the need for contentment. And then at the end of the passage, He ends on this really positive note, which is where I want to uh, focus today. He talks about this incredible promise and blessing if we learn to use finance well. So 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, he says this, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Now, I want to focus particularly on that final little phrase, the life that is truly life. And in a nutshell, I want to argue that Paul thinks there is a quality of life that is available that you only get to access by entering through the doorway of generosity. There is a quality of life available, the life that is truly life, that you get to access by entering through the doorway of generosity. Now let me qualify that. When Paul is talking about the life that is truly life, I think he primarily means eternal life, that we will get to experience forever when Jesus returns, makes this world new, and we spend eternity with God. And he is not saying the way you get to experience that is by buying your way in. That's not his point at all. You cannot buy eternal life. We get that as a gift only because of Jesus' death and resurrection on our behalf. But I think Paul is saying there is a way now that we can practice generosity so that we get a foretaste of that eternal life in the present. Jesus said something quite similar, actually, in John 10, verse 10. He says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. See, Jesus' picture of life to the full and Paul's picture of the life that is truly life, I think they're talking about the same thing. It's eternal life in God's new creation, but we get to experience something of it here and now. And the fact that we, the reason we can know that it's something we get to experience here and now is because Jesus says that the enemy has actually come to rob you of that quality of life now. And Paul says riches can rob you of that quality of life unless you learn to deal with them well. So what I want to look at today is how we can be generous, use money well, so that we get to get a foretaste now of that joy and that experience we will experience for all eternity. And I've called this talk the joy of generosity, which to you maybe right now sounds like an oxymoron. But I really think that generosity should be a joy because it is a way that we get to taste that eternal joy that we'll experience for all eternity. But if we are to see generosity as a joy... I think there are three mindset shifts that we might need to take, which we, have found, which we find in this passage. And the first is this. It's a shift from having to giving. See, contrary to what many people say or think, the Bible is not actually anti-money or riches. Three times in these verses, Paul uses the word rich. Two of them are definitely positive, and one of them is probably neutral at worst. He says, command those who are rich in this present world. He just means those who have earthly money. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and generous and willing to share. Now Paul repeats that word rich three times three times, because I think he wants us to make sure that we have the correct definition of what true riches is. And I think he is saying that being truly rich is defined not by what you have, but what you do with it. It's not about having, it's about giving. So he says, command those who are rich by the world's standards, who have money, to actually make sure that they measure up to God's standards of richness. Because it is possible to have plenty of possessions, to have riches and not be rich, if we don't use them the way God intends. See, God gives us richly everything for our own enjoyment and then tells us to use those things we have been richly given to do good works, to be rich in good works. It is possible to be very rich in the world's standards and not to be rich in the eyes of God. But the flip side is also true, which I find good news. It is possible to have very little by the world's standards and yet be truly rich in the eyes of God if we take the little that we have and we use it well. Because in God's definition, true richness is not about having, but about giving. Look at verse 17. It says, God richly provides us everything for our enjoyment, which I find a fascinating phrase. If you gave me something and said, hey, Liam, this is for your enjoyment, what I would assume by that is that you intend me to use that thing for myself. It's for my enjoyment, right? But Paul says that God richly gives us everything for our enjoyment, and then God intends for us to give it away which weirdly suggests that God thinks that we will get the most joy from the things that we have, not by having them, but by giving them. We are actually wired to get joy from generosity. And there's actually plenty of scientific research that backs all of this up. If you're interested in this area, I would encourage you to check out some research by the Templeton Foundation and the University of Notre Dame's Science of Generosity Project. Uh, You can check out their reports or this book actually by Professor Christian Smith, The Paradox of Generosity. I'll just summarize a couple of their findings. They argue that there is growing evidence that the human brain is wired for generosity. They say acting generously stimulates the neural circuits in our mind involved in reward, the same circuits that are activated when we eat food or have sex, which explains why giving feels good. Generosity increases our happiness. And studies show that this is true at every age range. For example, one study said that toddlers younger than two um, exhibit more happiness when giving treats to a puppet than when receiving treats themselves. And they were even happier when giving treats from their own bowl rather than giving someone else's treat at no cost to themselves. Now, as a parent who has a two-year-old, I find that very hard to believe, but I'm not going to argue with these scientists. Um, A study at the University of Zurich took adults this time and broke them into two groups. Each individual was given 25 Swiss francs per week for a month, about 20 pounds a week. The first group, the control group, had to spend the money on themselves, whilst the experimental group had to spend the money on others. They then took regular brain scans throughout the course of the experiment and found far higher levels of happiness in the group that were giving the money away than those who spent the money on themselves. During the experiment, each individual was given an opportunity to accept or reject a deal which would result in them losing out on something and someone else being given more. What they found is that the group who had already been practicing the discipline of giving away were far more likely to take the personal hit for someone else's good than the group who had been habitually spending the money on themselves. And brain scans showed that they were still happier than those who took the money for themselves. I find that fascinating. There are plenty of other similar uh, things I could talk about, but survey data from 136 countries around the world have shown that this is true everywhere, in different age brackets, different relationship statuses, different income brackets. It showed that people who have given to charity in the past year reported far greater happiness than those who hadn't. In fact, one study concludes, the happiness derived from donating to charity is on par with the level of happiness associated with the doubling of one's household income. That is incredible. And it's not just happiness. These studies and this research shows that generosity affects us at a whole load of levels. It lowers stress. It's a key factor in affecting the strength and length of a marriage. And studies of people over the age of 65 show that if you give generously of your time to volunteering to serve others, you will have a higher sense of well-being and possibly it may contribute to delayed mortality. See, Jesus was not wrong when he said it is better to give than to receive. Now, my point is not hey, scientists say that if you give, it'll make you feel great, so go for it. (laughs) Like, that's not my point at all. My point is this. It seems that we are hardwired to experience joy and other benefits when we give. So when we give generously, we're actually aligning ourselves with the way our creator has designed us to be. Now, like I say, I'm not saying, hey, if you want to feel good, just put some money in a bucket. Like, that's not my point. My point is, I'm sure all of us have had moments where we have given generously. Of our time or our money, our resources, our energy, our effort, and have felt great as a result. And my point is we shouldn't feel surprised by that. That's the way we are intended to be. That's because when we give generously, we get a foretaste of the joy we will experience for all eternity, the life that is truly life. So the practice of generosity right here and right now gives us a taste of what we will experience forever in God's recreated world. The first mindset shift is this. It's from having to giving. The second is this. It's not that we've got to give, it's that we get to give. It's not that we've got to give, it's that we get to give. Often we can think of giving as a discipline or a duty. At least I can. And I think in some sense that's right. Like one of the primary reasons I give is because I think the Bible tells me I should. And so I do see it as a discipline. I do see it as somehow something I, I, I'm expected to do or I, I should be doing. But if you only see giving or generosity as a discipline or a duty, I think you miss out on a huge truth, which is that it's not just that you've got to give, it's that you get to give. It's actually a privilege. It is a joy. Let me put it like this. God doesn't need our money. Like, God is not in trouble if I preach a bad sermon today, I mean, no more than usual, like if or if we don't give today, God is not like, I'm really nervous. I, I want to bless the world, but it all depends on these guys. I don't know what I'll do if they don't give. Like, that's not what's going on here. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Psalm 50.10 says, The cattle on a thousand hills are mine. Not mine, his. <laughs> I don't know what I do with that many cows. <laughs> It'd be a bit weird. Only so many shoes you can wear and burgers you can eat. But there you go. Acts 17 says, God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Like God has everything. Like, he made the trees with a word. He can create banknotes with no problem at all. Like the Bitcoin on a thousand laptops are his. He is not He's not, he, he's not <laughs> In the South, they were like, well, clearly you guys know what Bitcoin is. That's really interesting. Um, if we don't have facility to give by Bitcoin on the uh, em- envelopes, maybe we should have done that for you guys. But there you go. So God is not in trouble if we don't give. He's not like nervously thinking, oh, I don't have enough unless these guys come through for me. That's not what is going on here. God actually makes space for us to give. He allows us to be part of his plan to bless the world. It's not that we've got to give or God's in trouble. He actually makes it so that we get to give. We get to partner with him. Let me give you an example. Uh, Every Monday, I get to spend the day looking after my daughter, Jessie. Uh, There's a picture of her coming up. There you go. Um, Yeah, that's the right reaction. She is very cute. Um, Uh, she is coming up for three years old, and it's uh, got a cheeky little grin. And um, uh, Mondays are my favourite day. I get to look after her, and we hang out, and we go to the park, and we go on coffee dates, and she never pays. But so she needs to listen to this talk. But uh, but it's great. And one of the things we do every week is we do some kind of cooking together. We'll cook the meal for that evening, or quite often we will bake bread together. And yes, this is just a thin- thinly veiled uh, excuse for showing you I a have a cute daughter, and B I'm pretty good at making sourdough. So there you go. Um, follow me on Instagram. So she, uh, <laughs> uh, this is my daughter, and I spend every Monday with her, and, and it's, just, it's just really fun. I love it. But I'll be honest with you, because she's not here to hear this. She's not the best baker in the world. Like She is too. She's not good at it. Her kneading is pretty poor. Uh, her shaping technique leaves a lot to be desired. She can't operate the oven. Honestly, if my goal were to create the best loaves with as little mess and as few mistakes as possible, I would cut her out the equation, because she slows me down. She messes up my loaves, she gets mess everywhere. But of course my goal is not efficiency, is it? My goal is relationship. Because I'm her father. This is our thing. We do this together. I love the look on her face as she's like pounding this sort of wet dough and getting it everywhere. I love seeing her learn and grow and develop. You know what I love most? I love it at the end of the day when Helen gets in from work and Jessie takes this loaf like this and she runs up to her and goes, look what I made! And Helen is under no illusion. She's like, you're contributing nothing to that. And I know that as well. The look on her face is priceless. That's why I do it. That's why I make space in this thing that I could do way better without her. I make space for her. Because I love seeing the joy it brings as she learns, as she grows. My goal is not efficiency. My goal is relationship. I think God is exactly the same. God could get on and bless this world way better if we weren't in the equation. Like Honestly, I think I slow him down. I think I make it, and I think you do too, by the way. I, I, <laughs> I wasn't pointing specifically at you. <laughs> <laughs> But yes, true. I think God could just get on and bless this world so much better without us. But for some reason, he has decided to make space within his plan for us to get involved. I think he loves it when we get involved. When we learn and we grow, we try fasting for a day and it's like, oh, I'm so hungry by lunchtime. And he's like, this is great. You're going to get better and better at it. And he loves it. And when we give to offerings and we find it difficult, but we still do it, he loves it. I think he loves it when we come almost with that loaf of bread and go, look what we did. And God's like, you contributed very little to that. But the joy on your face, that's why I made space for you. It's not that we've got to give, it's that we get to give. It's a privilege. This has always been the case from day one. You know, God, Genesis 1 and 2, he creates the world. We often say he created this perfect world. Actually, you know what? God created an incomplete world. Ever thought about that? He could have finished it, and he could have made it in such a way that he never needed any work or any tending. I'm sure he could have done that if efficiency was his goal. But he didn't. He created an incomplete world, and the pinnacle of his creation was humankind, male and female, given the task to bring out the best in these raw materials he had made. Why did he do that? Because he wants us to get caught up in his plans for blessing the world. Efficiency isn't his driving factor. It's relationship. And we were made to be in his image. Which is, we are meant to be representatives of him. Patterning our lives on him. And as he richly gives to others, we are meant to richly give too. It's not that we've got to, it's that we get to. It's a privilege. It's a joy. As image bearers, we are meant to reflect the great king of kings. There's this great story about King Alexander the Great from the 3rd century BC. The story says that he was journeying home from a battle and um, they were coming alongside this road, um, on the road rather, with this carriage and a guy ran up to the carriage on the roadside, a beggar, and he started shouting out, give me a coin, give me a copper coin. And the courtier decided to push the guy away and send him away. But Alexander wasn't having any of it. He stopped the carriage. He got out. He went to the beggar. And he gave him not just one coin, but actually a whole bag of coins. And not just a bag of copper coins, a bag of gold coins. So he went and he got back in the carriage. And the courtier said, Sir, a copper coin would have adequately met the beggar's need and desire. Why give him gold? Alexander replied, a copper coin would suit the beggar's need, but gold coins suit Alexander's giving. Think about that for a second. Now, I don't know what his motives were. Maybe it was pride, maybe it was showing off. I I don't know. But at least what that response tells me is this. Our giving doesn't only say something about the worth and value of the person we give to. It does say that, but it says so much more. It actually says something about who we believe ourselves to be. King Alexander gave as was appropriate for one who bore the title of king. How much more appropriate is it for us to give generously as one who bears the the title image-bearer of the king of kings? God makes space for us to be part of his plan because he loves partnering with us. It's not that we've got to, it's that we get to. It's a joy and a privilege. But my third mindset shift is this. It's a shift from here to there. I think Paul is encouraging us, as Jesus does as well, to make a shift in how we think about our giving. It's not about giving here, it's about giving there. Paul says in verse 19 that people should give generously because in this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. What does he mean? Well, Paul is drawing a contrast between two ages, as it were. Verse 17, he talks about this present world or this present age. Verse 19, the coming age. And he is saying, don't give in such a way as to invest here in the present world, but give there, give into the the, the coming age. Because he says, in this world, finance is uncertain, which we all know, right? I don't need to convince you of that. But in God's newly created world where there is nothing wrong and everything is perfect, there is no such uncertainty. So he says, don't give in such a way as to invest here where you may lose it all. Give into his coming age where there is no such uncertainty. Jesus says something similar in Matthew chapter 6, doesn't he? He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. I think both Paul and Jesus are telling us To use our earthly finances now in such a way as to invest not into what makes sense here, but what makes sense through the perspective of eternity. Now, I've been around churches for years. I've heard lots of teaching on money. And that phrase, uh, lay up treasures in heaven, like it just rolls off the tongue. It's one of those Christianese sort of phrases, very easy to say, and actually drives me crazy. Like, what does it mean? It's such an abstract point. When I come to an offering and people are like, lay up treasures in heaven, I just... What I have here feels so tangible, that feels so intangible. And I struggle to know how that should influence the way that I give. A little while back, I was just wrestling with this and I I came across this story and this point in Acts chapter 10. And it really helped me. It's changed the way that I think about giving. I hope it will be helpful for you. It's still quite an abstract point, but it's maybe a bit more concrete at least. In Acts 10, it says this. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Let's stop there for a second. So this guy Cornelius, he's not a Jew. He's not even a Christian at this point. um, But we know, actually, from later in the story, he has a good reputation among the Jewish people. He's well known there. He probably went to the Jewish synagogue to worship. We know that he prays, so he has some kind of measure of faith. And he gives alms, not like... Arms, but like he generously gives to the poor. Now we're told that he is of the Italian cohort. A cohort was a group of 600 soldiers ruled over by six centurions. So he's a centurion in this cohort. That is, he has power and authority over about 100 people. So he's a powerful guy in a great position of authority. We also know from ancient sources that a centurion would get paid, on average, five times more than a regular soldier. So he has power, he has wealth, he has authority, and he uses them well, presumably somehow motivated by his faith in God. So this is what it says. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, your prayers and your arms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now let's just stop and think about what the angel says for a moment. He says your prayers have ascended before God, and that's pretty normal. I mean, not the angel bit, but the the um, not for me at least, but like the idea that prayers ascend before God, we know that. Okay, they go up into heaven, they go before God. That's what prayers do. What's odd about it is he says your prayers and your arms have ascended as a memorial before God. Your giving has done the same thing that prayers do. Like you've given and it's gone up to God. I don't think he means it literally, like, like up it goes. But like this. Like you are to see your giving as doing something of the same thing that your prayers do. They've ascended to God. They are standing before him. But actually, look exactly what it says. It says, your prayers and your arms have ascended as a memorial before God. What's a memorial? Like It's a statue, right? It's a structure. It's a thing, a concrete physical object that reminds you of a person or an event. That's what a memorial is, yeah? So the angel says that your prayers and your giving have ascended into heaven and have become like a physical memorial as a testimony to all of your faithfulness in prayerful devotion and in generous giving. And it stands before God in heaven. I think that's a powerful picture when you stop and think about it. Maybe picture it in your own mind. And Jesus actually says something similar in Matthew 26 and in Mark 14, the only Two other times, actually, it's the same story when this word memorial is used. Jesus tells, well, no, it's not a story, actually. Jesus is at this event and a lady comes with an alabaster jar full of expensive perfume and she breaks it open and pours it over Jesus. And the disciples say, what are you doing? That's such a waste. And Jesus says, no, what she is doing is beautiful. And wherever the good news about me goes all around the world for all eternity, this will go with it as what? A memorial. A memorial. Often says in memory, it literally means as a memorial of her. Like People will be able to look at this thing and remember her generosity. And the angel says the same thing has happened with your prayers and with your giving, Cornelius. It's ascended, it stands before God like a firm foundation, a reminder to him of all that you have done and given. Now this helps me because it means that every pound I put into an offering bucket doesn't just get subsumed into some kind of mass and I'm just like another nameless, faceless giver i will never know what you put in to the offering bucket like i don't want to know that that's probably not appropriate for me to know it's very easy to think well does it really matter no one's going to know i'm just one of many i'm just like a nameless giver you are not nameless to god you are not faceless to god Because everything you give rises up into heaven. You're laying it up there and it becomes like a statue with every line of your giving and faithful prayer on it. And God looks at it and he says, I remember every bit. I will never know what it costs you to give. I will never know every sacrifice, but it will not be unknown because God will know. Your giving rises to him like a memorial in heaven. And in a weird kind of way, that really helps me. Because when I come to give, there are times where I just feel tempted to think, you know, what I can give compared to what someone else can give is so tiny. Does it really matter? It's just going to get kind of subsumed into this big hole. Or Like, would anyone know? Like, do I really have to give? Does it really matter? Yeah, it does. Because it's not about other people knowing, it's about God knowing. And not one penny that we will give, not one single sacrifice we make will be unknown to God. It accumulates like a memorial before him in heaven. And so it actually helps me. And maybe this is just me, but maybe it will help you too. When I come to an offering to picture that, to picture what I give almost as if it were ascending to heaven and being like another line on that memorial stone before God. I imagine the joy of God saying, yes, he's done it again. He's given faithfully again. I'm going to use this for incredible things. And I think each of us will be surprised when we get to eternity. It wouldn't surprise me in the least if we actually stumbled across our memorial stone and then were blown away to see what had been recorded about us. I I don't think that's too much of a stretch to imagine that. Because Paul doesn't say that we lay up for God treasure in heaven, like as if he is in danger of forgetting. I don't think that's the case at all. We lay up treasure for ourselves in heaven. I think we'll get to benefit from it. And one of the ways I think we'll benefit from it is this. When we get to see things in the light of eternity, I think God will join the dots and we will see more clearly than we will ever perceive now what God has been able to do with every bit of giving we have sacrificially donated. I think there will be people in the new creation who you will never meet here on earth, but who may be in there partly because of choices you've made to sacrifice and give here and now. And I think you'll only get to know that through the lens of eternity. I remember years ago being at a church in Peterborough, a great church called Kingsgate um, Church. It's just an amazing a place that makes church leaders jealous. Uh, it's a brilliant, brilliant building and a great church. And I remember hearing uh, the pastor explain a bit about their giving and how they had um, saved for years to get this building, or to build this building. And the bit of the story that really stuck with me is this. He said, once they'd started constructing the building, they had a ceremony where everyone who had given into the offering had a chance to write their name on a bit of paper and lay it in the foundations of the building, which was symbolic of the fact that this structure was built on the sacrifice of individuals. Now, I don't know how many names are in the foundation of that building. I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of people have walked into that building over the years. I don't know how many people have given their lives to Jesus in that building, but it's a growing church, so I imagine plenty. I don't know how many people have been baptized in that church or been healed in that church or have their lives transformed in some way in that church. I doubt one single person knows the name of everybody that's in the foundations. In fact, I don't think that many people know there even are names down there. But every name is known to God. Because as they cast it into the foundations, it rose and it now stands as a memorial before God. So he remembers every gift. And one day, I think we will get to look at that memorial stone and go, Wow, God, I didn't know that you were capable of doing those things through that gift I gave. I think we will get to experience joy like you could not imagine right now as God joins the dots in eternity and we see what he's done with what we've given. But, Paul says, you get to experience a taste of that now by knowing that when you give, you are giving into something that is sure and certain, laying up a foundation in eternity. And so when I come to give, personally, I, I do I literally do this. I picture that memorial. I picture buildings like this, and I imagine myself laying my offering in the foundations of something incredible. I imagine it standing before God. I imagine that day when I will get to see with more clarity than I ever know now what he has done with it. I imagine that joy, and in a weird kind of way, the joy hits me now. Because I'm getting a little taste of the life that is truly life, that I will experience for all eternity. So what do we do with this? How do we apply what I've said today? and what you've heard over the last couple of weeks. Well, in one sense, actually the application I'm asking for is not just what we're going to do in a couple of minutes. Uh, That's important. But what I'm really doing is I'm inviting you to a lifestyle of generosity. You know, if just giving into an offering on one particular date in 2019 was all we were aiming for, we probably wouldn't have spent three weeks preaching about it. We're actually wanting to create a culture of generosity that runs through everything we do and in the hearts of every one of us us me definitely included i need to grow in this if we are to be a blessing to this city in the long haul so i'm inviting you not just to give in a moment but to enter a lifestyle of generosity so that all of us get to experience the joy of the life that is truly life but of course the immediate application is we are going to take an op- an offering today And so this is your opportunity and my opportunity to experience something of that joy. So actually, I'm going to invite the band back up. And uh, they're going to, that was your cue. And uh, they're going to play a a worship song while we have an opportunity to practically prepare ourselves for this offering. I know that many of you will already have prayed and decided what you are going to give and that the practical step for you now is maybe filling in that form as David so beautifully and elegantly modeled earlier. And uh, you may just want to take a couple of moments to do that. That's why we're giving you space to do that. Practical things matter. And so you may want to fill those forms in, uh, get ready for it. And if you're here as a couple, you may want to do that and take a prayerful moment together to say, right, we're giving into this. Uh, together. This is our moment. It may be actually that you haven't decided yet and you need to pray and think further. Maybe you felt God's been stirring your heart throughout this service and you want to fill in today. Or it may equally be that you are not ready to give today. Maybe you're thinking, I I need to reflect on this further. I need to go away. I need to talk with my, my partner or my friends and get some good counsel. I need to pray about this. I need to think about this further. That's great. If you want to do that, you will have another opportunity to give next week or you can give during the week and use the gift cards. Do whatever you need to do. It may be that you're sitting here and you're thinking, look, I've already decided I'm not giving into this offering. I've come here, I've decided that, I've thought about it, I'm 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 just choosing not to. And honestly that's between you and God. I will never know that. I don't really want to know that. It's between you and God. But it's not that you've got to give, it's that you get to give. And so I am actually keen that all of us have an opportunity to give, even at least a little bit today. Because I'm keen that all of us have an opportunity to experience something of the joy of the life that is truly life. And I think all of us get a chance to do that this morning. It may be that you're here thinking, the amount that I have to give is so tiny, it is really honestly not worth it. It's embarrassing. Like, I I just, I don't want to give. I just don't think it would achieve anything. My appeal to you is this. It's not about the amount. It's about the heart. And God sees the heart. We only see the amount at the end of the day. God sees the heart. And not one penny is unknown or forgotten to him god sees the attitude with which we give and he honors that it may be that you think look i'm only here temporarily why would i bother giving into something i'm not going to see the fruit of maybe you know you're only in london for like 3 months or a year or well, maybe honestly london doesn't feel like home to you and you think i'm only here temporarily i'm not going to be here in 5 years time why would i bother giving into something i'm not going to see the fruition of my appeal to you is this don't look at it through what makes sense here but from there. And give on the basis of an eternal perspective, not a current, present perspective. Helen and I, my wife and I, have been part of uh, a number of churches across the country over the years. And I love the fact that our names are written into the foundation of various different churches through having given in gift days like this. And the funny thing is that if I went back to some of those churches, I can't go in and go, hey, my name is in the foundations. People go, I have no idea who you are. But, I know that some of the blessings that they have experienced and are experiencing are in part due to decisions that we have made as a couple to give sacrificially into things that we would never see the fruit of. But in the light of eternity, I think we will. And it may well be, weird though this sounds, that you get to eternity and you stumble across this stone and you're like, oh, that's my giving. And you look and you're like, oh yeah, that was that weird year of my life when I was part of this church in London. i have forgotten about that. i have forgotten I gave into that. And God will not have forgotten. It will stand before him like a memorial. And so you have an opportunity, even if you are only here for a year or a few months, you have an opportunity today to lay your name in the foundations of this church in a way that could bless many, many people. So, three shifts I've encouraged us to go through today. True richness is not about having but giving. It's not that we've got to give, but we get to give. And as we give, we're not giving here but there, laying up treasures in heaven as a memorial and sure foundation. So we're going to take a moment to do the practical stuff we need to do or to pray, to give God your heart even if you're not going to give today. And then David will come up and lead us into the offering. And my prayer for us is that as we do this, God will pour out joy on us. Right now, we will leave this place more joyful than when we came.